What types of fortifications did Rome use in Scotland and what can they tell us about the Roman army? Join me and guest expert Dr Andrew Tibbs as we cover exactly this and much, much more on the Ancient History Hound podcast. Hi and welcome, my name's Neil and this is the first of two episodes on Roman Scotland. And it's two because when I got talking with my special guest, we really, really got talking. So I thought, why not split out what was going to be a single episode on fortifications in Roman Scotland and their campaigns there into two separate episodes. This one then is about the fortifications. And they tell us a great deal from what the Romans were trying to achieve there through to exactly how the Roman army functioned in the field. Added to this, we got to cover some of the questions that you kindly sent in. Thanks again for those. And by the way, I tried to include as many as I could. And these questions relate to things such as the logistics of water supplies through to what sort of settlements may have grown around the fortifications. So thanks again for them. As standard, you can find the notes for this episode. And I think that will really be relevant, particularly with the geography of Scotland on ancientblogger.com. That's my website. And you can find me as at Ancient Blogger on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok and YouTube. And the podcast is on Twitter separately as at Hound Ancient. You can always come and say hi on any of those. It'll be great to hear from you. Now then to my guest, Dr. Andrew Tibbs. Dr. Tibbs is an archaeologist and historian who specialises in researching Roman activity in Northern England and Scotland. A teaching fellow with the University of Edinburgh, and an honorary research fellow in archaeology at Durham University. He hosts the popular At Roman Scotland Twitter account, which he uses to promote the Roman archaeology of Northern Britain to a wider audience. By the way, if you're not following it, get following it. At the beginning of the year, his short guide to Hadrian's Wall was published by Amberley, and more recently, Bar Publishing have released Facing the Enemy, a GIS analysis of early Roman fortifications in Scotland. So just to recap then, this episode is the first half of the chat we had and the second half of the chat, where we got stuck into the Roman campaigns in Scotland, will form a separate episode which I'll release in a few weeks. So make sure you subscribe to avoid missing out. Thanks then both to Andrew for being such a great guest and for you for taking the time to listen. Here we go. Hi Andrew and thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Not at all, not at all. Now, we're going to cover a number of topics here, but before we get into them, where can people find both yourself and your content? Main place would probably be Twitter, if it still exists, and that's <laughs> at Roman Scotland, all one word. And also online website, andrewtibbs.com or uh, romanscotland.com. And I've got a couple of books out that you can get through independent retailers and Amazon anywhere in the world, I'm told. Talking about your books, I bought Beyond the Empire. Uh, it's a really, really good read. On the front cover, it says A Guide to Roman Scotland. Yeah. And that's exactly what it is. It's got details as to each sort of site, maps, when the finds were found. It's lots of interesting info. So full disclosure, I paid for it. So this isn't, uh, I'm not on any kind of commission. And I know more recently, you've got a new book out. It's called Facing the Enemy. Can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, so Facing the Enemy is basically a bit of a scientific study of Roman sites in Scotland, mainly focusing 
on those that were built in the first century, so the very earliest sites. Sort of combines a bit of computer modelling, looks at some of the old data we have from archaeological investigations in the past, and looks at why they're building Roman fortifications in certain locations. Here's the spoiler. It's all about controlling people. So they build fortifications in locations Mm. that help them to control that local population. Uh, One final thing before we start. It might seem a bit pedantic, but we're going to use the word Scotland, and we already have done. But obviously Scotland didn't exist in the periods which we'll be discussing. And I know that sounds, as I said, a bit pedantic, but I just want to make sure that people realise that Scotland, as it were, wasn't something that existed then. It came around a lot later on. But obviously, it's very useful to help us understand where things were happening. Anyway, we're going to start with the different types of fortifications which were found in the northern frontier as it waxed and waned. And in your book, Beyond the Empire, you listed five types. I appreciate that there might be some overlap between them, but these are five basic types of fortification found in Scotland. And these are a legionary fort, a fort, fortlet, camps and towers. Can we start then with the legionary fort? What was it exactly and where do we have one? So, yeah, in Scotland, we've got one legionary base. So that's what we call a fortress. So it houses around 5,000 men, give or take a bit. We don't exactly know how many people were living in there at one time. And it's the sort of regional command headquarters. It covers an area of 20.5 hectares. To give you a bit of a a sort of indication how big that is, um, the next nearest Leedry Fortress is York. And the sort of city centre of that is essentially covering the fortress, and that covers about 20 hectares. Um, There is a slightly bigger fortress that was occupied at that time, and that's Chester which is down near the Welsh border, near Liverpool. And that's about 24.3 hectares it covers. So these are the big regional command centres. And the one at Inchtoodle, which is in Perthshire, um, in central, sort of northern half of central Scotland, it it was going to be the main base for controlling at least the north of Scotland. There would have been some overlap between what York and Inchtoodle cover. It would have consisted of workshops, uh, administration headquarters, religious headquarters, financial headquarters. But from what we've done on the excavations on the site, it appears to have been abandoned part of the way through construction. Um, It's all built in wooden buildings on turf foundations, and they were starting to convert some of that to stone, which is generally what they did once they got everything up and running. So, yeah, that's the fortress. Just to give some perspective on that, the legionary fortress that we have the remains of are 111 miles north of the later Hadrian's Wall. And that's actually 42 miles north of the later Antonine Wall. So again, we have this big resource, big investment by Rome, even even though it was temporary, deep in Scotland. Next up, we have forts. What were those? How did they differ? And what did they do? So forts, and, and again... Um, mainly thinking about the first century, there's 30 or so of those, and they're more like the local headquarters. Um, so they are positioned in these strategic places, so they're, they're in locations that let them control either resources or the local population, so movement routes, roads through the landscape, they're controlling these. They're a lot smaller, they, they probably house maybe around 500 men, and they're the more permanent fortification in a landscape, and they're much more secure, take longer to build. Again, in the first century in Scotland, they're built from turf with wooden 
uh, structures on top of that. So it's slightly different from, say, Hadrian's Wall, where a lot of the forts are built out of stone and that. They don't right. quite get to doing that stage in Scotland when they build them originally. And next up, my new favourite word, fortlet. Yeah, so fortlets are like... Uh, the easiest way to say it is like they're micro forts, so they're very small fortifications, but they have none of none of the features that a fort has, such as granaries to store the food, um, right. a temple, administrative buildings. They have none of that. They're essentially a barracks, uh, a very small barracks for for a handful of men, and possibly a couple of other little buildings surrounded by a turf wall, very big turf wall to make them secure, and a ditch around that. And they're usually controlling something strategic in the landscape, such as a river crossing and sometimes a road. The next one then, or the penultimate one, is camps. So camps are, yeah, they, they are in the embodiment of complex, I think is the best way to describe those. And they can vary in size. So the very basic element, they're like a fort, but they're much more temporary to build uh, and occupy. So it's a very sort of, basic level secure compound in the landscape right. but we have several different types of camp that we think we've identified in scotland uh, and generally that applies elsewhere in the empire so you have marching camps which are located throughout the landscape and appear to be where the army are camping overnight or for a couple of days or potentially a couple of weeks um, we've done some radiocarbon dating on one site that implies they've been occupied for more than a couple of nights. So those are those are the marching camps. So it's the army moving through the landscape and building these to stay in overnight. Second type you've got are practice camps. So those appear to be just attempts at building camps. So we've got a series of sites such as Lochlands, which is in central Scotland near a place called Falkirk. And these are just like a series of banks and ditches um, that appear to be all being constructed as, as sort of training training camps for the or, or for the soldiers to sort of attempt their, their camp craft work, as it were. Mm. You know, army's got to practice, got to yeah, do their skills. Yeah. And, and the one thing we do see in Scotland is that there are so many different designs of camps. They're not like forts, which generally are rectangular, although not always. Um, the camps can vary in shape and size to fit the terrain and, and their activity. The other type of camp we've got is a sort of siege works. We think they're siege works. And these, the, the camp we've got, the two camps we have that, that seem to embody this are a, a place near, a place called Burnswork, which is a massive flat-topped hill. Uh, but there are two camps on the north and the south sides of this uh, hill, and it appears that the army have been laying siege to them. Now, whether that was mm. as them practicing their craft work again, or whether it's them attempting to attack people on the hill, we're not quite sure. And, and archaeological debate seems to vary depending on someone does a study, we change our mind. Someone does another study, we change our minds back. So there's still a lot of ongoing work in that area. And we've got, seem to have another type of camp that we've, we think we've identified which are basically camps that are located in strategic positions like forts. And these tend to be in valleys at the entrance of valleys or overlooking valleys. Again, it's to control the movement routes of the indigenous population, so where they're moving through the landscape. 
we appear to have a number of camps that are in those locations, some of which seem to be replaced by forts and some of which don't. But we need to do a lot more work to be more certain about those. So with the camps, then, you've got a real range. You can have them as simply places which you are effectively stopping on the way to going somewhere. There could be somewhere that you are practicing your craft. And I find that particularly interesting because, of course, we always think of the Roman army as being professional. It's one of the words that's often used to them. They're professional because they train so much. And then finally, we have towers. Yeah, we've got towers. Now, these seem to just date to the first century in Scotland. There's some indication they may date to one of the later invasions of Scotland, some of them, but jury's still out on that. But these are essentially, they, they combine two roles, or they seem to combine two roles, that they seem to be watchtowers, so alerting if there are problems, and they also appear to be signal towers, so carrying signals from one location to another. We've got two systems in Scotland. We've got one in southern Scotland, um, one in central Persia. And the one in southern Scotland seems to be an early warning system. So a series of towers quite far apart, and they signal back to a place called Melrose. Um, the Roman fort there is called Tremontium, so it's a series of camps, fort that's been reoccupied and rebuilt on several occasions and a few other things that are going on in that area. The one in Perthshire, the towers are much closer together and it seems to have the capacity to relay a signal from one location to another, potentially the fortress at Inchtoodle. And I'll just briefly mention a bit about signalling, because it's not just a case of one site signalling another. We don't really know how they were signalling. Automatically, my, my brain went to fires as being the main way to signal. But Yeah, it's... So we've got several methods, and there's actually been quite a lot written in the classical period about signalling, particularly in the sort of main part of the Greek period. Uh, they would tend to use a lot of flashing um, heliogliphs, uh, which is mm -hmm. mirrors flashing at each other. Of course, the weather in Scotland doesn't really lend itself <laughs> to that on, on a <laughs> yeah. lot of occasions. Those long sunny days. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other method that's potentially being in use in Scotland, other than sort of fires, would be semaphore, so flags waving at each oh. other. But of course, that that's all very good and well during the daytime, but you can't see anything at night. No. So, you know, which kind of leaves eight, nine hours week period that you could attack something and, and not be seen. So uh, it's probably likely to have been fires, but that in itself has a number of issues which we need to think about and i won't go into all that here but it's like if you've got a square tower that has four sides and you've got something signaling on both sides does that mean you have a flame or a fire on both sides or do you have it on the roof the issue with that is if you're talking about a wooden tower and you've got a brazier on top that's potentially not very not a very suitable situation so yeah there are a lot of issues and questions with this that that people have been looking at. And I won't go into that because we're not doing signaling today. The other challenge we've got is the signaling distances. So six kilometers is what studies have shown the maximum visibility for the human eye to be able to make out what is approaching. So you're doing an early warning system. You've then got to relay that back. Six kilometers is also, sorry, slightly more than six kilometers is the distance that signals can be made out as well. 
So mm. you've got to have a site two towers less than that distance apart to be able to make out the signalling. Right. So that's a bit of a challenge in the Scottish borders. We'd have been able to do a signal, but you would have been able to make out much more than there's a fire and they're, they're mm. blocking it or there's a flag being waved. So that's one type of system. And then in central Persia, the towers are a lot closer together, which indicates maybe relaying messages. So towers, incredibly complex, but hmm. we, we, we're working on it. There was one I know that was found in the Netherlands, and it was on the banks, I think it's of the Rhine. It was dated to AD 50. So it's sort of commensurate with the first century uh, AD. And it was apparently, they've estimated it was 16 feet high, which is just under five metres. And the base was a square 10 feet along each side. And this apparently had stakes around it. Could any of those towers look like this? Or was there a general design they followed? So the tower you're talking about was found on the Oud Rhine. So it's the old Rhine. It's a tributary. um, And it's part of river defences, a river defence network. um, Mm. Protecting the Roman fortifications has been theorised that that's all to do with an aborted invasion of Britain, um, but we'll go into that one today. Mm. The towers in Scotland are a mixture of designs. In southern Scotland, in the Scottish borders, there is a bit of an indication that these may have been stone towers. Right. A lot of this comes down to 18th, 19th, early 20th century investigations of sites which would not have been as rigorous as they are as we would do today. Um, and a lot of that does need revisiting um, mm. just to try and confirm things, maybe try and get some dating, all that sort of stuff. In northern or Perthshire, in the northern part of Scotland, the towers tend to be more of a design of four pillars, four posts, um, surrounded by a, a bank and a ditch. Uh, that's the oh. general design of those. We haven't, we've not really done many extensively detailed excavations for a couple of decades now but there doesn't seem to be any indication that there are stakes around it in the same way that the site you're talking about in the netherlands has but a lot of these sites are quite well worn and Mm. very few of them are anywhere near half the original height they were so Mm. if there were stakes around them there's a good chance that evidence has has disappeared um yeah but you know we don't know either way. Perhaps we'll find out some more information about them. And I dare say if we do, that will be on at Roman Scotland. So again, follow the Twitter. You'll hear it there first. <laughs> I've got some questions. If you've sent any of these, thanks very much. I couldn't include all of the questions. And the first one is logistics, which is hugely important. People tend to forget how much this was a vital component to how Rome did what it did. You don't move people around the empire without being able to feed and water them. And this relates to water usage. So did the Roman forts or fortifications rely on rivers and streams or did they dig wells? It's a very good question. And it's a bit of both. So over 90% of first and second century sites are generally near either major watercourses or, in some cases, small rivers, streams, what we call burns in Scotland. Those latter sites that are by the the small streams and rivers tend to be the camps that are built using a variety of factors. So they've got to find 
a large enough location that is suitable to build a fortification on. And if they're marching through a landscape to get from point A to point B, they're just building in a convenient place, but there will always invariably be some sort of water course nearby. Preferably the, the, for larger ones, because there's just such a huge volume of water mm. that, that is used, not just for drinking, you've also got the animals, you've got washing, yes. cleaning, yes. everything. And they tend to like to be able to have something flowing by the site, partly because there's a defensive nature of yeah. anyone attacking us across the river. But also you take the good water further up the river yep. and then you know you let the, the bad water out further mm. down the river. I think I've got mm. those right. I always get up river and down river mixed <laughs> up. You want you want the rubbish water to flow away. Yeah. And you want to take the clean water. In terms of wells, there are a number of wells in the headquarters buildings that we've found, particularly one on Bar Hill is a good example. We we've got mixed views on what those are for, but because it's in the headquarters building, the assumption has generally been that it's for uh, sort of religious ceremonial purposes. They've got water on site that they can use yeah. in whatever ceremony. Whether or not everybody traipsing into the headquarters building to extract water for, you know, feeding animals, washing, mm-hmm. drinking, cooking, whether that mm-hmm. would be practical or not, I'm not quite sure. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Bar Hill is highest point of the Antonine Wall. It's fairly inaccessible. There aren't many water supplies you know there's no rivers running nearby Mm. there may be some springs in the local area but yeah they're using wells the other thing we've got and there's some great examples on hadrian's wall uh housesteads for are and i think vindolanda for are um big containers that they've built to house rainwater in so housesteads on top of a crags um there is no water up on the top the nearest spring Mm. is it the foot of the crags uh, within the Roman area, so it's fairly secure to get water, but it's a hassle to go up and down. So they do have big troughs, stone-built troughs that, that mm. they store water in. That seems to happen elsewhere in the more sort of inaccessible areas. So preference for a water course, wells if they have to. I did some basic mathematics on this. If you take seven litres as what they expect a legionary may well have used, and then if you consider that there are 5,000 men in that legionary fort that you mentioned, and again, with the caveat that there were 5,000 men in that fort at that time, you might have had a few cohorts outside, perhaps going elsewhere. And also, there's a lot of references in antiquity to sort of paper strength, people referring to a legion as being this many men in theory. However, it was often operating under strength. So just with those two numbers you come to a figure of around 35,000 litres a day that's 9,200 US gallons and I also haven't added something you mentioned which was particularly important and very very demanding in terms of water animals pack animals horses things like that so that gives you a sort of number to have a think about as how much they needed water and again Rome was successful in doing what it did largely because it had a very well-trained army, but also because it got its logistics right. The second question I have relates to what type of settlements might grow up around a fort. These are often referred to as a vicus. Do we have any of them in Scotland? So a vicus is essentially 
sort of a, a settlement with a bit of status. We don't really have any of those in Scotland. What we do have is an example at Inveresk, which is a fort that gets built in the 2nd century, and there's a settlement that grows up around that. It's now the modern village of Inveresk. It's sort of very lovely, picturesque place. But occasionally there are pockets of development when they build new houses or do things in the the village and uncover some of the Roman remains. And it seems to be quite a large settlement that seems to go on throughout the Roman period in Scotland. It's probably the only example of anything near Avicus that we have. Every fort will have attracted followers. So that would be people like merchants, people offering services, blacksmiths, pubs, prostitutes. Um, there's, there's also the element of the soldiers' families seem to be going with them. Mm. So you'll you'll have a lot of families t- tagging along. You'll also have their slaves, things like that. And then you'll have people that want to flock there because you know the financial opportunities. And it's yeah. just how villages grow today. Yeah. But the, the way to think of them is more like shanty towns. So you're talking about wooden huts and things like that that are thrown up very quickly, very easily, and probably fairly unpleasant to live in. You haven't got any of these big, Mm. fancy Roman dwellings that you see in in southern Britain, England, the rest of the empire. Um, This is just the people following the army. And bearing in mind that the army can be up and gone the next day and be relocated anywhere. And you wouldn't really have a clue. Because they just go, they're not going to tell civilians what they're up to. No, you just no. have to follow along <laughs> um, and, and hope you end up somewhere. We don't really have huge amounts of evidence for that in Scotland. We've got a number of sites we suspect there are these settlements going on. And, and they do almost exclusively appear to be around forts rather than camps or fortlets. Forts being the most secure places. Leedry Fortress at Inchtoodle, we've not uncovered any evidence of that, but it's on a very small site, it's on an actual mm. plateau, and there wouldn't be much room for anyone else to be there. Mm. I'll say all that, investigations into Roman sites in Scotland have almost exclusively focused on the fortification itself. Um, so okay. very, very rarely looking outside the four walls. Right. Um, so I would expect there to be a lot more to be found. And as I say, we've a lot of indications that there may be settlements at some of these sites, but Mm. we've never done more formal investigations to be able to sort of say hand on heart that there's something there. Something you mentioned, I think you referred to earlier, was the temporary nature of some of these fortifications, which obviously wouldn't lend permanent structures if there were being set up near them. And also, if, as you say, it's a sort of shanty town. They're not going to be built using materials that are going to last a particularly long time. And that comes into the third question. We've got five. Is there a particularly well-preserved fortification in Scotland? And this includes roads. Do you know, that's that's a really difficult question to answer, particularly when you ask a professional, because I kind of think there's lots of great (laughs) sites and it's narrowing it down. But to the untrained eye who doesn't know what a lump and bump in a field mm. is, it's a lot more difficult. I guess you know, there's several sites which are really good examples of, of surviving aspects of, of the Roman occupation in Scotland. Ardoch Fort is probably the most popular and well-known 
It's in central Persia. It's a first century fort. It's reoccupied in the second century when they actually cut it down in size. And what's really great about that site is that the ditch and ramparts, so the earthen defensive walls, uh, which are then followed by a rampart, and there's a series of four or five of these, they survive really, really well in this site. You know, I'm six foot and I can stand in the bottom of the ditch and there's still right. another three foot above me to be able to see. Now, you're an attacking enemy and yeah. you're climbing over the rampart, over the big wall that's a, a you know, couple of meters high and then you're into the ditch. You know, yep. you're, you're at the mercy of the soldiers. Um, yeah. That's a great site. There's another site slightly further north of that called Kames Castle. It's a Roman fortlet site, and it survives really well as a big lump of, of uh, earthwork um, that you can go and see. You have to get permission from the people that, that own it uh, knocking on their front door. But it's a great site to go see. It gives you a real good idea of what has survived. In West Lothian, to the west of Edinburgh, there is Castle Gregg, which is another fort lit. It doesn't survive particularly well on the ground, but if you see aerial photos of it, you can see the defensive mm. uh, defensive earthworks quite clearly. Uh, a lot of these I, I post on, on Roman Scotland because I've got drawn and I've done work yeah. on these. I looked at a photo of Inchtuthal from above and you can really see how outlined it is in the landscape, if that's, yeah. I think that's probably the correct term, but you can really make things out. Whereas obviously, if you just stood in the field, you can't really see anything. Or yeah. to, to my untrained amateur eye, I wouldn't be able to. But And a lot of these sites in Scotland, unfortunately, don't have the signposting for various reasons. Not, not anybody's particular fault or a, a lack of will, just other complexities. A lot of them mm. don't have the signposting that explains what on earth you're looking at. And I think we need to do better at that in Scotland because if people go visit them, yeah. it helps. You know, if they don't have the book to hand or they don't have another guidebook, mm. you know, it's really difficult to make out what you're seeing. But yeah, Inchtoodle has some of the surviving ditches. It has some stonework that's hidden away from one of the, the other buildings. But again, that ditch, you know, I, I've done research on it, I've done geophysics on it with some colleagues. We've built a 3D model of it. So, you know, there's lots of things we can do to interpret it, but very difficult when you're on the ground if you don't know what you're looking at and you haven't mm -hmm. got someone saying, you know, that that lump there, that was this building yeah. and X building. You find that elsewhere. It's something that whenever I go and visit, well, when I go on holiday, when I can, and I'm able to go and find a site, it does tax uh, the brain after a while. You go into a field and there's a sort of clump of stone in the corner. And someone's telling you, well, this was actually where Julius Caesar did this and this is all that. And you sort of trying to build it mentally. And after you yeah. do that for a day at different sites, you're just exhausted. You have no imagination left. So I mean, it, for, it is tough. For me, I often say to people, for me, looking at the landscape is like reading a book or mm. more like reading a technical manual, one of those Haynes car <laughs> yeah. manuals or something. It's like, you know, it's taken me almost 30 years now and i can fairly easily read mm -hmm. what i'm seeing but that's a lot of looking at fields mm. and trying to understand what's going on and, and yeah that's partly why i wrote beyond the empire mm. to give people the opportunity to go out and have a look at this site and maybe be able to see what some of the lumps and bumps are or at least be yeah. explained this field is really important not just for the cows that are in it 
but no. because you know it's a pivotal you know Roman yeah. camp in, in the yeah. campaign. You're standing in history. You are. Yeah, we need to get better at telling people that. The penultimate question revolves Stirling, which is definitely still here, and this is located northeast of Glasgow, northwest of Edinburgh. And you may have heard of it because the relevance with it being a strategic point is held much later in history. In fact, this is a part of the world where Scotland and the advancing English army clashed. In fact, they were defeated there, according to my notes, in 1297 by William Wallace, nonetheless. But back to earlier times, is obviously an important strategic point in later history. Was it particularly important in the time when the Roman campaigns were acting there? Is there anything that we found at Stirling? Yeah, so in the times before Mel Gibson, when he came along in Braveheart, Stirling was potentially less important strategically, but nonetheless still quite important. And the medieval period, they start building castles to secure the landscape, and Stirling mm. is on a natural volcanic outcrop. It's the same seam that Edinburgh Castle is built on. Um, so it is, you know, fairly fairly impregnable in the early medieval period until weaponry gets you know a bit more advanced but yeah coming back to the roman period it's important to say that stirling is between edinburgh and glasgow very roughly it's on the narrow neck of land that you always see on maps and there are some 11th century 12th century maps one by a guy called matthew paris that basically shows scotland as a two islands uh, or the southern part is all part of Britain, and then there's an island to the north part with a little bridge. Uh, okay. And that is Stirling Bridge. And right. it kind of exemplifies what everybody thinks about it. It's the easiest way to cross over mm. uh, what is the River Forth at that point. The Firth of Forth, the Firth being the inlet, the estuary, turns into the river, runs past Stirling. There used to be a lot of sea-going ships could get there in the medieval period which is why Stirling becomes this big, important centre later in history. In the Roman period, there's nothing we're aware of going on at Stirling. There are second century fortifications much further near the river mouth at Inveresk, um, to the east of Edinburgh and Cramond to the west of Edinburgh. Earlier than that, there isn't much going on. And later than that, there doesn't really seem to be much going on. The river, crossing the river in the Stirling area, and I, I use that very loosely, the wider area, would have been very important. Um, there were fords across the river. We don't know if they're in use in the Roman period, but we do know the Romans are marching northwards and they have to cross somewhere. So we've got a few, few fords we think it could be. We've got some other sites that are currently actively being investigated by a colleague of mine, Murray Cook, who is looking into Roman crossings over the Forth. But in terms of fortifications, you would expect a fortlet at the very least to be protecting the crossing. That's, that is what happens in the first and second centuries. Um, third century, the last campaign in Scotland is very different kettle of fish. But in the first and second centuries, there's bound to have been a fortlet wherever the crossing was to protect. Right. That's, that's just de facto military strategy with mm. the Romans in this period, in this location. Is there anything bigger? I wouldn't be surprised if a mm. fort is found somewhere in the wider area around Stirling, but we have no evidence. 
Hmm. We have no indications. We've a lack of material evidence that would suggest something is happening there. But we have to caveat hmm. that with the fact that this is a medieval uh, settlement and any Roman evidence could be wiped out. Hmm. There are traces of Roman road in the area, but that doesn't really mean anything. And there's a whole complexity around are Roman roads Roman or are they later medieval? Right. Won't get into all that. So there could be something in Stirling. There's no evidence. It's very unlikely to have been on Castle Rock because the Roman strategy in that period is not to be building an outcrops because you're very disadvantaged because you're hmm. narrowed in, you're hemmed in by anyone attacking. Hmm. They can approach the rock and you're stuck there. Not that that would be a problem for the Romans, but they're fairly risk-averse where they can be. So if there is anything, it's going to be near the river, down by the riverbank somewhere. The final question, and a cheery one, deals with human sacrifice. And that's because there were some human remains that were found at Tremontium, which is something you mentioned earlier. It's a Roman fort located near Melrose on the Scottish borders. So these human remains that were found, is there any evidence to suggest that was part of human sacrifice or human sacrifice was involved in some way? So I think the first thing to say is I'm not aware of any evidence of human sacrifice in Scotland, really in most of Britain in this period. But the thing is, what is human sacrifice? You know, Hmm. humans have been killing humans since the dawn of time. As archaeologists, we find human remains and we analyze them and we can tell we can tell a heck of a lot by analysing them, you know. But how do we know if that's human sacrifice as opposed to murder? You know, human yep. sacrifice has an element of religious ritual about that. Mm. You're very unlikely to find anything that conclusively leads you to be able to positively definitely say this has been human sacrifice as opposed to is it someone buried with grave goods? Has it been murder? Mm all these things we've got a series of something like 50 i think it is beheaded bodies that were found at york um which date to to roman times you know is that human sacrifice or is that just beheading prisoners yeah or you know getting rid of a problem mm. um we've got something similar in east lothian from an iron age hill fort and um, that may there's 20 or so, 30 bodies of youths, I think they were described as, who had been beheaded as well. You know, now beheading is just a Roman way of killing people. Yeah. Quite easy, fairly symbolic. You've got the head and you can do anything with that. What is human sacrifice has to be your first definition. And then how do you know how you define it as how the Romans defined it and is applied to remains? So, I did a two-parter podcast on human sacrifice in antiquity. And what you've mentioned, context, is really the most important part. Tremontian Trust are on Twitter, and they're they're fantastic. Uh, I follow them. So you can always check in with them as well. I'm sure they'll be able to help you out with any more details. And that is where this part of our chat ended. That is to say, the stuff relating to Roman fortifications. I hope you enjoyed it, and please start using the word fortlet more often. And if you've got any feedback, which can also be a review or a rating, just do it, or come and say hello. Until next time, more fortlets, please. Keep well, 
and stay safe.